This is your host, Casey Deshock. Alaska Conversations is supported by a community of Alaskans dedicated to our state. If you'd like to view more information about the show, you can find us at alaskaconversations.com. There, you'll be able to find this podcast as well as our show archive. The website is another place to find information and data concerning the topics we discuss, events, upcoming guests, and more about Alaska Conversations. If you have a question, comment, topic recommendation, or a suggested guest, you can email contact at alaskaconversations.com. Welcome to Alaska Conversations. This is episode three, and my guest today is Craig Medred. Craig is an independent journalist at craigmedred.news. He's traveled and seen a tremendous amount of this state, and he's been reporting on it for decades. Craig, welcome to Alaska Conversations. Well, thanks, Casey. I hope it's warm out there. It's warm enough, 22 degrees today, so I know it's a lot colder in Anchorage. And today we are going to be talking about fish, but first, Craig, why don't we start with kind of the evolution of you. You came to the state sometime in the last 40 years. You've worked out of Juneau, Fairbanks, Anchorage, and journalism. So what is the Craig Medred story? Um, <laughs> I fled civilization in 1973. The uh, uh, Exactly what happened was that uh, I was attending the University of Minnesota. I went home one spring for the opening day of fishing season, which in Minnesota is nuts. The uh, traffic was backed up for about 50 miles. People were driving in the median to try and get around it. And I got home and I told my mother, that's it. And that summer got in a car and uh, drove to Alaska, ran out of gas. Um, it was 1973. There were, there were no jobs in Fairbanks. Um, I lived out in the White Mountains for a while. I lived kind of like a homeless person in town for a while. I ate way too many snowshoe hares, which I can no longer eat because I ate so many. The sight of them makes my stomach kind of turn. I ate way too many grayling, which I no longer have any desire to eat. Um, I ended up rooming with a couple guys I met, one of whom had a job and uh, worked as the manager in a McDonald's where he would knock things off the counter and bring them home after they put them in the dumpster so we could all eat. Um, and eventually decided to go back to school simply because it was the best option at the time and I could get a student loan and uh, attended the University of Alaska Fairbanks, had always kind of dabbled in journalism, um, got a TV job, radio TV job while I was a student there, um, completed my degree uh, did some PR for a while. Actually, did a uh, almost a year stint as a assistant press secretary for Mike Gravel in uh, D.C. and decided D.C. was uh, not my kind of place. There weren't many jobs there I wanted. I hated living in the city. And a friend, a former classmate, called from Juneau and said, "Do you want a job?" Um, and I said, "Sure." And next thing I know, I was in Juneau and spent mm, seven years, eight years there working for the Juneau Empire, the uh, the associate and Associated Press, United Fishermen of Alaska, editing their newspaper for a while. Actually, the timing couldn't have been better because it was time when the uh, D2 lands battle, which was to become the Alaska National Parks legislation, was underway. And... Uh, I managed to get to fly all over the state with uh, various congressional and uh, interior department tours as a reporter and really, really got to look at a lot of Alaska. 
And, you know, I was happy there. I was living on a sailboat, blue water cruiser, married. Um, clearly, the first wife wasn't happy, which she announced to me. Um, so we got divorced. I went to Seattle and worked for National Fisherman for oh, eight months or so in Seafood Business Report. She sold the boat. Um, a friend called from Juno who had worked, I mean, from Anchorage who I'd worked for and said, do you want a job at the Anchorage Daily News? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. Um, so I came back to Anchorage, got the news from the wife that the boat had been sold to a guy in Anchorage and that I was supposed to help him and his two friends deliver it. Um, so we took off from Juno. <laughs> Tide was wrong at Indian Passage. I decided to run it anyway. It scared the shit out of myself. It was the closest I've ever come to sinking a boat. I mean, it was close. Um, we got into Elfin Cove, and there was gale warnings, and all the trollers were coming in. And I said, great, let's go. And uh, we went out in the Gulf and got pounded for uh, oh, about 48 hours. I, I never saw those guys. I saw them one time when it, when it started. We were underwater as much as we were above. And they came on threw up, and after that, they just stayed in the cabin. Um, and, you know, after 48 hours, it went as the Gulf does flat calm. And uh, I had some idea where we were and gave them a course of steer and went to bed and said, wake me up. And uh, we just missed the entrance to Resurrection Bay by maybe five miles to the south. Motored in there. I got off the boat, and weirdly enough, I really haven't spent any time at sea since, which I once loved. And, uh, Went to work for the Anchorage Daily News for ever, and probably until mm, five years ago, something like that. And then it was clear that was imploding, um, as journalism is imploding. Went to work for a an internet startup called Alaska Dispatch, which was online only, and uh, had some great ideas, and was owned by a crazy lady who uh, was once a good friend of mine. And that went great until she decided to buy the Anchorage Failingers. And I think everyone in the state now knows the rest of the story that she drove it into bankruptcy. Probably, I think it took two or three years, but it was it was on the ropes long before that. And uh, I kind of left. And when I left, I ended up working on my own, which is where I am now. The So the, the news media market has changed so much since you began. I mean, in the beginning or when you started in the industry, um, it was, I mean, that was, that was the, the daily record of note. I mean, that was the everything. As information has become easier and easier for people to grab, there's been a shift to uh, everybody expects their news to be for free, and there's a platform for anybody. I mean, the platform that I'm using right now, the platform that you use, other independents in the state. So did you see that, you saw that, coming did you see the independent journalism coming or were you just noticing failing revenue generally well there are converging trends here the uh when i started i mean i started in radio and tv and and radio news was a hot thing at one time i mean it was like you know everything you can do as fast as you can do it get it now get it right and get it on the air and and that model you know, kind of grabbed a little niche and then it faded away. So when the internet thing started, that part was familiar to me that there's, you know, this demand for news now that there are a lot of people want to know right this minute. So I realized the internet was going to take off. Um, what 
I don't think anybody recognized was how the proliferation of, of free news, which suddenly put TV and radio, which had been competing with, TV, with, with print for a long time, in the same business. I mean, all of a sudden, we were, you know, we, we didn't, for a long time, newspapers thought of themselves as an addition to TV and radio. It's, it was okay, like, let them break the story. We'll explain the story in the morning. Um, and that all kind of went away because radio and TV started doing everything. And then people started providing free news. And now it's just, I mean, it's a mess. Um, it, it was inevitable. I mean, the biggest problem and this parallels of the fishing industry here. The biggest problem for newspapers was production costs. Um, it costs a lot to print on paper. And they just, they couldn't, they couldn't keep the revenue stream going to afford that. And they're, they're still strong. I mean, there's hardly a newspaper in the country that isn't still struggling. You have written uh, quite a few stories now, you know, for the new, comparing news to the fishing industry. So we'll move into the fishing industry as soon as we can. But where basically the industry or the consumer or technology, I'm not exactly certain which one I believe in the most, but the fishing industry is on, on the verge of some pretty dramatic changes, and I don't know what that means. I don't know what you think that it means, but it's something similar to maybe 1999 news industry or maybe a, a different Yeah, date. I mean, you're on the cusp of, of fighting this technological change that uh, – you know, there's no telling where it goes, but my philosophy has kind of been, having been involved in this on the journalism side and just having watched this in the general public is you never beat tech. I mean, tech, if somebody comes up with a simpler, more efficient, non-labor-involved way to do things, um, it's, gonna, it's going to roll into place and, and you're going to have to adapt to it. And the problem now is is that agriculture, which took over everything on land, is starting to do the same thing with seafood. And there are big advantages to doing that. I mean, you can, you know, if you look at what the Norwegians are doing, you, you get a, a uniform size product that you can build a plant to handle a uniform size product without anyone hardly ever touching a fish, which just becomes you know, problematic. Well, I look at that and I kind of think that, you know, within a decade or so, we're going to see some sort of automated size sorting operation in plants in Bristol Bay that does much the same thing and reduces their, their demand for, for workers. And I mean, the implications of that just kind of ripple here. So the, the worker situation in Bristol Bay, primarily if you're talking about processing, um, you're not losing out on, I mean, you are losing out on workers, but uh, uh, most of those workers are going to be out of state or, or even non, non-citizen workers. That's, that's where the industry has gone. Here. Yes, but what, there, what everyone neglects when they talk about that is that there's a ripple effect because in order to support those workers, you've got to have a much bigger footprint in the bay I mean, you have much more facilities to take care of. You've got to make sure there's food and equipment there for to support those people in the summer. There's a lot of things that go on during the non-fishing season that, that are gearing up to keep those people alive when they come for those jobs. If you just get a fully automated plant, you just shut the sucker down and leave for the winter. The uh, 
but when we're talking, when you're talking about Norway, you're talking about these other locations. What's happening in Miami? I believe that that fish plant's going to come on. Yeah, Miami is uh, well, Homestead, which is just outside of Miami, is the weirdest thing to me. I mean, we have all this talk about global warming and coastal flooding and blah blah blah, and these guys are investing tens of millions in a in a salmon hatchery in in Florida, you know, that's near the coast. I I don't quite get it, but. Well, I mean, there's some big there's some big money involved. Um, those people usually don't take stupid gambles. Um, they're they're looking at a production, you know, that amps up to provide a, about a quarter of what the domestic market for foreign salmon is now, which is huge. Um, part of the reason for their location is uh, they're anywhere within you know a matter of hours. Um, I mean, it, it, it makes things tough to compete with. The farmed salmon versus wild salmon is something that Alaska has been at the forefront of since the 1980s, I think. I believe 1989, probably. Yeah, 1989 was when we banned it, and the ban took effect in 90. Um, so we kind of, uh, you know, we, we've kind of watched it and feared it. And uh, I think what we're seeing now is everyone's worst fears from the, from the 80s. <laughs> well, we we thought, okay, wild salmon is certainly better than farm salmon. And I mean, hearing the word farm salmon to me is like nails on a chalkboard. I don't want to participate in it. I'm scared of farm salmon, the frankenfish argument, all of all of the etc. But as I read some of your some of the uh, reporting that you've done on the industry, I decided to see whether or not you were uh, reporting accurately, if you will, check your facts. And so I, did, I pulled up an article from the Washington Post. I'll just read from you. They did a, a taste test, and you talk about yeah, I know, you talk, I know. Yeah, you talk about this, and th- these are the words. The judgments were definitive and surprising. Farm salmon beat wild salmon hands down. And so they tested 10 fish. Uh, Alaska fish, though sockeye was absent from the the 10 varieties, the Alaska coho, Alaska king finished 10th out of 10 and 8th out of 10. And then in the Boston Globe just this year, they they write, they describe uh, farm salmon compared to, and these ones have sockeye salmon, and this is me reading again, um, the Scottish salmon from Captain Martin's at $14.95 a pound, is everything salmon should be. Perfect, moist texture, delicious flavor that tastes of the sea, almost buttery. That's farm salmon. When they describe the wild Alaska sockeye from Trader Joe's at eleven ninety nine a pound, isn't as red as its Whole Foods counterpart. It's dry and has little flavor. And so then they compared the Whole Foods, and they said Whole Foods, and this is at fourteen ninety nine a pound, very dark, almost red, uh, firm, flesh that seems meaty it has more flavor than farmed which is good for us but its dense texture isn't winning because there is a difference between farmed and uh wild salmon as far as the the makeup of the muscle composition etc yeah no i i mean we eat at home we sockeye because of course it's available all the time and we stock the freezer every year so we're i mean salmon to me is that kind of heavy you know well textured meat like like meat um most people salmon is something a little more uh, a little lighter and uh i mean the the, the <laughs> i was actually thinking about this last night because we, we normally eat 
well game here too, but for some reason I got a roast from Costco um, and fixed a roast and it, it was delicious. It was simply delicious. It was like, you know, some of that fat South Dakota beef. Um, it was full of flavor. It, it satisfied the normal evolutionary human craving for fat. Um, and the problem we you have now with the, with the farm fish is they can kind of figure out where in that spectrum people have the best taste, which is kind of fat driven. And they can produce a fish that hits that, you know, fat percentage that makes it taste the best to the human palate. And that, I mean, it's, it's really worrisome what, you know, they can do in terms of marketing, what they can do in terms of producing fish now that are environmentally clean by putting them in an on-land plant using filtered recirculated water. It's, you know, I just don't see our niche hanging on much longer. The, so the, the wild sockeye salmon or king, whatever we're fishing for, it, it's got a, it's a very low number compared to the farm salmon. That's one of the things that, that surprises me. You're talking about Norway producing, uh, yeah, it's, it, we're, we're down times, 12 yeah. times. What's we're, we're, we're down. I mean, overall we're, we're down, you know, wild fish in total. And that includes the Russians who produce a lot of no one. If anyone's noticed, wild fish in total are like 30% of the market. So we're probably, you know, in a good year, we might be 20. In a bad year, we might split it with the Russians. Um, So we're a small part of the market to begin with. Um, And at some point, we're price limited by what they do. I mean, what farm fish do kind of sets a a standard for pricing. the problem with that is is that they keep getting more and more efficient. So that I would expect that price to come up very, very slowly, which makes us lose ground against inflation. It's uh I mean it's it's not a very bright picture. It's a lot like journalism. I mean it's if you look at the if you look at the two parallels, it's this, this tech problem creeping up to bite you in the butt. Well, with the price of, of farm salmon, though, one benefit that uh, if you're looking at it from the outside, you may try to place normal supply and demand uh, pricing on fish. But if the farm salmon takes 70, 80 or 90 percent of the market, they're going to become price makers rather than takers. And yep. I could definitely see a movement towards more cartel type of activity, you know, collusion a little bit between the industries. Well, there's already some of that. I mean, there already is some of that. The Europeans have gone after the, the, after the Norwegians as as engaging in that already. Um, And there's been some litigation in Europe accusing them of that kind of behavior. And so what it would look like for many Alaska fishermen would be more than likely a, perhaps a more stable price environment to operate in, potentially. Not saying that that's what is going to happen, but there are signs that it will stabilize prices somewhere where we're at today, not to the inflation-adjusted $4 a pound that uh, Alaska once saw. Yeah, and, 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 and the problem I see is that it's going gonna, it's gonna to stabilize it, but we're going to stabilize it low. Um, 
the, the you know production costs and in production costs in in Norway and elsewhere are going to continue to grow slowly, while inflation probably will be just a little bit ahead of them, simply because they're now competing with each other, and competition is a powerful, powerful factor. I mean, look at what it's done in agriculture on land in America, how cheap food is. Um, I mean, it's staggering. I mean, it's amazing how cheap food is in this country now, and I would expect that, you know, farming of salmon will, will start to make inflation catch up with those prices. Um, and that's not good for us. When you compare uh, fishing to the agriculture industry, another piece of it in Alaska is the limited entry system. The limited entry permit system limits the number of permits. If, if anybody doesn't know, you pay a market value right now, a Bristol Bay drift permits at 200,000, 205,000 plus you buy your vessel. That's usually reflective of the potential revenue that you can generate in that fishery. Well, you can't stack permits. You could, you could create a D boat. You could put two permit holders on one drift boat, but other than that, you're not going to be making these large operations, five, six, ten permits. In the agriculture industry, smaller producers that were less efficient were simply bought out. That's not going to happen in Alaska, but what it means is if prices are set lower, as as you're suggesting, there will become a point, inflation-adjusted, where small, inefficient producers can no longer even make, make make it feasible to go out and fish and yeah, or, or they, or they, or they become hobbyists. I mean, you know, you, you become a teacher in, in, in Seattle who wants to have fun in the summer. So you, you acquire a permit so you can go to Alaska and, you know, make a little money. I mean, it really doesn't care if you make much money, you just want to go and, you know, have a good time in Alaska because it's a great place to be in the summer and make, you know, cover costs and pocket a little extra. And that's kind of the way uh, I'm not really familiar with the cook inlet fishery, but that's it, primarily hobbyist fishery by now. Yeah, that's primary. I mean, most of the people in the cook inlet fishery now are are hobbyists. I mean, they're they're, they're bankers, they're lawyers, they're they're lobbyists. They you know they have real jobs. They do it because it you know they enjoy doing it and they make some extra money. Um, you know, you go out and you, you spend some weeks in the summer and you make $20,000 and that's great. But that's great if you have a real job. Um, it, it's not great if it is your job. From the state's perspective, uh, we spend about as much money regulating and promoting our fishery as we bring in. So what happens to the fishery from a state budget standpoint really is... is pretty much a wash it's not it's not going to hurt alaska it's not gonna it's not going to benefit alaska it's going to if the fishery changes a lot it's going to devastate some of our coastal communities if people can't continue to fish and right now in bristol bay this is about as good as it can possibly be our harvests have been enormous over the past you know three or four years harvests have been enormous but it's already had an impact i mean like you know of the original permits that were in the bay, a lot of them have left. I mean, it, it's it's already start, it's already sparked a shift that uh, you know has changed the bay greatly. Well, it's hard to keep a fisherman in the bay 
And oh, I know. It, it, because we it, the costs of living here just cut into so much of your of your profit. And so yeah, as soon as I, you I, can, it, yeah, it, 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 it's a sensible thing to uh, stow your boat and go to Anchorage, if nowhere else, um, just because the cost of living here is so much lower. And and you've got, you know, you've got the attractions of the city, and you can go to the movie, you know, you can, it, 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 there's just a lot of, for most people, there are a lot of advantages to city life now. So it's cheaper, and you have access to those advantages. It's... uh you know, it's a strange situation, but we're kind of reverting back to where Alaska was, you know, in the old mining days when everyone went south for the winter. The so with the with the fishing industry, you you're comparing it to the mining days of of people going south for the winter. I'm not really familiar with uh, how long ago that was, what that looked like. Uh, well, in the gold rush days, I mean, very, very few people stayed in country. Um, you know, they got on a steamer and got the heck out of here because r- winters were brutal and, uh, you know, you couldn't get much mining done, so there wasn't much purpose to staying. And and the fishing, I mean, a lot of the fishermen traditionally did that. Um, I mean, the difference was that we, the processing industry supported a lot more people in the state because we had a lot more processing plants scattered along the coast and they all needed caretakers. They all needed someone to, you know, take care of everything over the winter because they all had to bring in labor and they needed all the infrastructure to support that. So there was a certain need for people there to keep those places going, but they're all, you know, gone, burned down, going, rotting away. Um, Processing has shifted to a few few locations. It, it it has in that way become more efficient. When it becomes more efficient, you have less jobs. I would expect it to become even more efficient. You have even less jobs. Um, I, I just don't. I, 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 it's hard to guess where it goes. Well, it can go. It can go numerous different directions. That's a problem with forecasting. Uh, I, 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 I exactly. I, I clamor. I clamor this about oil all of, all of the time, and and it's something that frustrates me. Just to go off topic and talk about oil for a second, but if you look at the two thousand and three state revenue forecast, they projected oil was going to be twenty five to thirty dollars a barrel through two thousand and thirteen. It went. No, to I know. It went to one hundred and forty. If you look at that, yeah, and then they projected then then they projected it was going to stay over a hundred, and and it, <laughs> and it didn't, and and it didn't, it, it tragically didn't, <laughs> and that's the problem with when you're trying to measure what what the consumer is going to do because as farm fish come onto the market more and more readily available, the other consequence of that, I believe, I believe the salmon is a great product. I think everybody in the world would enjoy to eat salmon if they had access to it. And the more fish that come on, the broader base of demand. And so some of that should additionally help the fishing industry, but whether or not that it helps an Alaska fishery becomes a lot more difficult question yeah. to answer. That's a difficult question. And let's look what happened with the oil industry there. That demand went up and all of a sudden people figured out it system of fracking and now look at where we are i mean north dakota is producing significantly more oil than alaska is yeah, about, four um, times. about four times yeah as much. 
Yeah, I mean, Oklahoma and Texas are back in the game. They're producing more. I mean, we're we're all we're, we used to be the biggest producer. I think we're down to number five or six now, maybe seven. I mean, we're we're just barely above California. Yeah, it, it, the markets are just so powerful that once somebody finds a technological way to you know lower costs, they just start gaining market share like crazy and. If we're on the cusp of that with fisheries as we appear to be, then we're in a difficult place. Um, I mean, I think our, uh, the cachet, I think we have the thing that may keep a bunch of people in business. And I've seen more and more fishermen go to kind of, you know, become fishermen processors. Is there is some place there for, for a product that's, you know, exotic, for lack of a better word. I mean, there are a lot of companies in California selling fine wine at a hundred dollars a bottle that, you know, it's pretty hard for the average wine drinker to tell from what you get in a box from Costco. That's, that is great. Especially if you're eating one or two fillets. I mean, if you're in the center, yeah. if you're in the center of the country, it's hard when you live in Alaska and you eat, you know, a hundred to a hundred plus meals of salmon per year, which I, I don't know if that's the average. It's, I, I easily eat a hundred plus meals of salmon a year. Um, but it's a lot different if you're in Kansas and the only time that you have salmon is at your cousin's wedding and maybe at some other dinner and maybe yeah, special occasion. And, and, and there's a, there's a market. I mean, there's a market for that, that this is a, you know, a special, special kind of product you know, that you eat at special occasions that, you know, is from far off Alaska, you know, and has a bunch of imagery around it that, uh, you know, makes it more valuable. How big that market, I don't know. Um, but there is a market for that. And, and you, you can boost value that way. And, I mean, there is some kind of, I mean, some of the people I know who do that, it's as much about them as it is about the fish. I mean, there are people who kind of like being connected to the producer. Um, and I think there's kind of, you know, the farther we get in urban America from where things are produced, I think there's an interest in that among a certain number of people of, of knowing your local farmer. So knowing your local fish catcher, even if he lives in Alaska, I mean, I know people in Kodiak who fly fish back to Minneapolis and, and basically sell it themselves um, and make money doing that. I mean, I think that that kind of market may have more potential than we think it does. I've, I've even seen uh, one fisherman here in the Bay does not live in the Bay, but uh, salmon at the end of the season, a portion of it is flown back into the Denver region and uh-huh. and pop up uh, restaurants, so it's open for a night. It's open for two nights. It's wild Alaska salmon, and you bring in a bunch of people that are willing to pay a lot because it's going to be on the market for just a short period of time, one or two days offered, and that boosts a lot of the value of the fish. But that's only so long as wild salmon continues to win the battle uh, for the consumer insofar as it is the more environmentally conscious choice. And I'm not sure that we're going to continue to win that battle. That's well, that's concern. Yeah. That's my ultimate fear too, is that, is that the, the clean water, sterile environment, 
recirculating aquaculture people will will come after that that neat saying you know look you don't know where those fish were have been you don't know where those what those fish ate we can tell you what our fish ate we can tell you that they were in pure water we can tell you they were never exposed to any pathogens etc 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 and that becomes i mean you know in a, in a world where all a lot of people worry about the safety of their food while eating crap every day. That becomes something marketable. And your your fish have been swimming around in uh, ocean waste, and the fish yeah. the fishing vessels are contributing to the garbage blob in the Pacific. And those fish are really supposed to go and feed bears, and now you're killing bears, and because you know yeah. You're, you're depressing the whole. You're, you're depressing the whole ecosystem. You're not feeding the bears. You're fishing. You know who knows how much microplastic those fish consumed at sea. We can see the microplastic in them is probably not good for you. You know the, the boats pollute. The biggest cause of marine pollution is fishing. Uh, you know it just goes on and on and on. I mean, if somebody really wants to start attacking us on that standpoint, well, then they could really make life rough for Alaska fisheries and. I don't see the farm salmon people doing that directly, but God forbid if they do, because they control most of the money and most of the market. Well, um, and there's a there are some serious when it comes to the environmental movement, there are some seriously goal gullible consumers. Um, I have a a game that uh, a board game for my child that I've you know I'm over Christmas we bought it, and one of the things in there it touts that all of the plastic in its in any board game that the company makes is corn based plastic. So it's <laughs> it, so there's no pollution. As if tractors don't harvest the corn and all of the things that go into as if that. as if runoff from uh, fertilizer used on, on corn isn't adding to the dead zone off the uh of the mouth of the Mississippi and the Gulf of Alaska, yeah, there are a lot of problems with industrial agriculture that uh, you can't really call it a clean industry. But yet, you know, there's that 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 kind of idea that oil is dirty and farming is clean, and we really don't look very objectively at the trade-offs on both sides. Well, when you first got up here, so you're talking. 40 plus years ago, Alaska, and when Alaska became a state as well, and before that, it was a resource boom. Um, it was a place where at least the potential for resource development was palpable everywhere, all sort of timber and oil and fish, and etc. We have become a very small producer uh, of anything. And yeah, we're aside. I mean, you know, we we still produce a significant amount of oil, although not the amount we did. But and we're doing pretty good on gold. I mean, we have some significant gold operations going now, which are are pretty clean, um, pretty well done, actually, that nobody much notices. But aside from that, yeah, we don't we don't really produce anything anymore, um, except tourists. Uh, we're good at that. And and most you know, most people would probably uh, push back and say, "Oh, I don't think that mining could ever be clean." Um, so that is one. Uh, you know, I don't think anybody's going to fight for the 
the mining industry and say there's an example of an environmentally conscious industry? Well, I don't know. I grew up around the mining industry in Minnesota. It was just north of us in the Iron Range and uh, Crosby Ironton, which was a part of the Cuyuna, is, uh, you know, they dug a bunch of big holes in the uh, in the ground, which are now uh, very nice lakes. And it's become the uh, mountain biking mecca of Minnesota that everybody goes up there to uh, ride around the lakes and on the old trails that are all artificially created by mining. So, you know, it... it it, it it tears the land up. There's no doubt about that. There are some mining operations which the dealing with runoff water is a nightmare, um, which probably shouldn't be done anywhere. Um, and there are other kind of mining that probably is not so bad. There, where I grew, I grew up in Western South Dakota, as I told you before. Been up here since I was 22. Um, there was a mining operation not far from from the hometown, and it was mined prior to reclamation uh-huh. requirements. And I mean that land is that land's useless. It's somebody made money on it, but that land is just a giant eyesore and scar, and it's it it's not productive. Where it would have it would have been productive had it not gone into mining. Not saying that that's the case in Alaska, but th- that's my experience. Well, it's, I mean, there's certainly, there, there certainly were lots of places like that in Alaska. I mean, they, you know, <laughs> Juneau being one of them. Um, I, I don't, I don't know how familiar you are with Juneau, but the whole kind of port there that, that's formed by Gasino Channel, the whole wing that comes out to form the, cut the channel off and actually make the port of Juneau into a port. Is all mine tailings from the old uh, Juno Douglas mine, which carved the whole inside of the mountain out there. Um, and it wasn't very pretty at one time. It's been cleaned up. It looks a lot better. Um, I mean, most of you know, <laughs> the mining history of Alaska is interesting, and I, and I always get a kick out of it when I when I drive to the Kenai because when you drive to the Kenai, you go around Turnigan Arm, you come up Turnigan Pass, and then you drop down into the to the six mile drainage and head up towards summit lake and that if you look at pictures of that place in the old days it it was a wasteland um they logged off everything they power washed the hillsides to get a gold they just ripped the living snot out of that valley um it it was what you described in 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 the dakotas and uh you drive through there now, it's all regrown, it looks very wild, and I'm sure every tourist that goes through there, they think that's part of wild, never-changed Alaska. Um, so things do do recover. Um, it's just that that was, you know, 100 years ago, and most of us aren't going to be around to see the recovery, so it really sucks. Um and that's the trade-off with mining. It has it has a big footprint. It's it's not nearly as clean as oil. Oils, I mean, you know, we can talk a lot about oil and and roads on the North Slope and all that, but its footprint's pretty small. I mean, compared to agriculture, it's nothing. <laughs> we we had a governor who was an environmentalist, which I never understood. This part of Jay, I never understood. Jay Ammon was a big environmentalist, loved the wilderness, um, and wanted to get us engaged in in serious, serious agriculture in, in, in the interior and elsewhere. And I mean, the reality of agriculture is once you change that land to farm country, 
it stays that way. Yeah, you can look at uh, Southern Illinois, Indiana. I think th- those are some of your best examples because that is, you know, if you go into the plains, if you're in Kansas, yeah. it's, it's hard to tell that there's a difference because you don't have as many trees and river bottoms. But when you get into the, the hilly country, the Virginias, that land has been converted to farmland. I mean, it's it's fundamentally different. It'll never, yeah, you can it'll, it'll never go back. Years. It'll yeah, it'll never go back. It's like going to Europe. It's it's never going to go back. Um, the forests are very sterile. I mean, it's it's it, you know it, they can look nice enough, but if, if you are were trained as an ecologist as to which I was, I mean, it, it's a monoculture forest forest being raised like big wheat. Um, there's not much else that lives at ground level is going to survive in there because there's no food. Um, you know, you get some use of the trees by birds and whatnot, but yeah, it, it's, you know, but people are not as, as they are with their diet. They're not that sophisticated to look at these things and, and recognize that kind of change. I mean, a mine, you can look at it and go, the land's all ripped up. This looks horrible. Unless you like land ripped up. Um, most people look at a, you know, a forest of neatly lined up trees that are all tall and healthy looking and, you know, they see that as a good thing. Look at the pretty forest. You can walk around in it, too, because there's no underbrush. Well, I mean, underbrush is what supports things you and I like, like deer and elk and moose and things you can shoot and eat. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's a, uh, I mean, we do, it's a very interesting world we deal in in terms of how people perceive things. The harvest going going back to the fish just real quick but it's leading into something different the harvests in bristol bay have been large and if you look at a graph that looks at over the last 50 years say uh harvests have been going up quite substantially the number yeah, of fish that we significantly some of that big portion of that is hatchery fish another big piece of that is um that are the permits and the fishermen have traded hands from inefficient operators to the most efficient operators, so they're just better at it. The, the industry's evolved, the equipment's evolved, and that seems like that's going to continue to trend up as long as the fish are available. You do, you do make a claim, and I don't know if you if it is a claim or not, but you do think in, that you see some something tied to global warming or the water's warming in the Pacific that may be attributing to that. I, I, I would say there's a scientific consensus that that's the case. I mean, I don't, I don't know of a scientist who disagrees with that. Um, you know, the, the carrying capacity of the Bay has gone up as the, as that part of the world has warmed up and there, there just seems no other conclusion there. I, it, it's funny that, uh, Mac Bernard used to be the regional sport fisher supervisor out there. Your way is an old classmate of mine, and he still goes out there to teach at the at the uh, sport the guide school. Okay. And we got talking about this on his last trip back through here because it had been a while since he'd been to the bay, and then it really dawned on him how the uplands had changed there, and how you started to get forest in places that he only knew it was brush, which of course raises water temperature 
in fresh water, which is part of what's going on here. And this water temperature goes up in fresh water, it becomes more productive, and it can support more smolts and fry. And, you know, so you get more smolts and fry going to the ocean, which has also gotten warmer. So there's more food in the ocean. And yeah, Bristol Bay has been, you know, a big winner. How long that will continue, I mean, is anyone's guess. I. I would say if we're really into the global warming kind of scenario, people predict that we're going to stay on that trend. Um, where the upper limit of that is, I don't think anybody, you know, I, I, I don't think anybody out there has a clue as to how high the temperature has to go before you start losing in that equation. Um, what they know is that what we've seen so far has boosted it. Um, it it looks like we're in a long-term continuing pattern that will keep it high. Um, but, you know, nature's fickle. I mean, I, I, when I got here in the 70s, the North Pacific was cold, and we weren't harvesting diddly anywhere. Um, and it could cycle back cold. Well, that's one of the pieces with when you're trying to model global warming, what's going to happen just to keep it in mind for anybody that's that's listening and thinking about it, you can have a position on global warming or not, but what you really have to do is take into consideration the assumptions that are being made that go into the model. So that's the one thing that we miss all the time. Somewhere somebody's making assumptions when they look at these models. Yeah, and and and, and, and the models the models are only as good as your input. And and my gut feeling is we just don't have enough input yet. Um, if you look at the range of variation, when people start talking about the projection, the range is huge. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's far bigger than the range for our salmon forecast. We know how big those are and, and how, you know, we pick a point within the range and we're really happy if we come more somewhere close to it, but the ranges are large and that's kind of what we're dealing with on, on global warming. Yeah, I mean, they can be 10 or 20% off yeah. easily. And 10 or 20% off on, on our climate projections are the difference between catastrophe and life as we know it going on forever and ever and ever. Yeah, it, it's, it's, a, it's a very... It's a very complex situation. And, you know, well, what I think it's simple is going to go up like X number, and that's just... I mean, that's not even real science to talk about those terms. I mean, real science works with probabilities in a range, and that range is wide. And, uh, you know, we just need to recognize the variability that, you know, we could get in the bottom of the range, we could get in the top of the range. Where we get within the range is really just, you know, throw a dart at the board and you, you got the number. And you also believe that there are indications that Alaska may, in the long run, be a net benefiter from a warming climate, whether it's global warming or a cycle, whichever you want to call it. I mean, I guess the consensus is that we're causing some of that, and I'm not going to argue with that. Um, but that Well, it's hard, it's hard to believe we're not causing some of that. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the volume of hydrocarbons we've ripped out from underneath the earth, converted into free carbon and turned loose into the atmosphere since the start of the Industrial Revolution is, is mind-boggling. I mean, that would all be locked up carbon beneath the ground. So 
clearly we're adding the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. I mean, there's not any doubt about that. You can track that. Clearly, that has some role in the in the in the shield of of chemicals around the planet to hold heat in. We don't. <laughs> there are a couple problems. One of them being that we don't even really know how that shield works because if you go back to the last great interglacial period, which was somewhat warmer than we are now, carbon dioxide was about half of what we have it, and we were significantly hotter. So. You know, something else is going on in the atmosphere. Some people say water vapor to influence all that. It's, you know, you almost hate to talk about this because people start thinking you're a climate change skeptic. And I'm not a climate change skeptic, but I am a skeptic because that's what you learn to be when you're a, trained as a scientist. And and I kind of look at it all and it's, 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 hard to, it's hard to sort out where we're going. It gets simplified that, you know, we're going to go at X number of degrees in this linear scale. And well, for one thing, it isn't going to happen that way. If we do go up like that, we're going to kind of stair step up because of the natural variability. Um, and what we stair step up to is, you know, it's much more fluid than, than the general public believes at this time. And one other thing on that is that if, if the globe warms, no matter what, there's going to be some winners and some losers in that. It's not it's not a hundred percent bad for everywhere. Um, there are different industries that would be that would benefit in central northern Canada, Siberia, Alaska. Oh yeah, I, I'm I'm convinced the Russians think they're a winner. Increased agriculture. I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I'm convinced that if you look at the behavior of Putin that the Russians think there's nothing in this for them but a win, that, you know, they're already the latest, largest wheat producer on the globe, that it's just going to help them up production in their wheat belt. And uh, they're like, you know, their, their secret philosophy, I have no doubt, is bring it on. Um, you know, if we can control uh, world agriculture, bring it on. It would just be better for us. And, I, I, you know, they're now led by a guy who uh, that's how he thinks. I mean, his his interest is Mother Russia, not the globe. And if we're considering Alaska in this this world of fish, the world of resource development, the warming climate, etc., that we've been talking about, where do you think where do you think we're headed in the next ten years? <laughs> you know, where what's what are we going to do? Are we going to continue to just just say, well, hopefully we can keep it going the way that we have it going now? but that something rescues us? Are we going to adapt to anything? Well, I, I think you're, I mean, I think you're going to see adaptation in some areas. Um, I mean, I, I, I just, you know, in the next 10 years, it's inevitable to me that you see a lot more automation and fish processing out your way. Um, that's one thing I'm going, think's going to happen. And that's going to have implications on a population level as to terms of, you know, it just will change a place when there are less bodies needed. Um, it will change who, who runs the plants. It will change who's in charge of the plants. Um, it, it'll end that influx of, of workers that, you know, it, it'll change the place. Elsewhere, I, it, it's just hard to... <sighs> I mean, I worry about the oil industry simply because it's so important here, and I just don't 
our production costs are so high compared to anywhere else. I don't, it's hard to imagine anything but a continued kind of of downsizing there to uh, what we've got now, which are independent, for lack of a word, but minor producers who specialize in squeezing the maximum out of old fields, um, which will keep the pipeline running, but it really doesn't keep the money flowing to state government the way we've uh, become accustomed to it. So, uh, oil. I, I, Oil going away it creates uh, a cultural shift. That's my belief. I mean, I'm no anthropologist. I'm no, but my observations are as we as we move into uh, different industries taking over and playing a larger role in the state. You have a different composition of people, and with us being so transient, uh, Alaska is going a lot. The composition of residents in Alaska are going to be different. I mean, I knew when I worked at BP, I had uh, one lady that I worked with, she had moved up to Alaska for an oil job 20 years ago or something. I don't know how long she had been up there. She had never in her life driven more than 45 minutes from the BP building. <laughs> never. She had traveled outside of the state, but never left Anchorage. Uh, that's unbelievable to me. Uh, it would be unbelievable to <laughs> It would be unbelievable to me, except in my experience at the Anchorage Daily News, I, I met a fair number of reporters who I, I, I always expected reporters to be intellectually curious because I was, and, and I met a fair number of reporters who, who never left Anchorage. Um, and In fact, we once sent a reporter down to cover a story in Kenai who got lost on the way there. Well, all you got to do is not turn. And call, call. Well, she turned. She turned and ended up in Hope, and then called from Hope asking for direction, <laughs> which it, it was both amazing in that she'd never been to the Kenai before, and even more amazing to me personally because it would be embarrassing to call for directions in that case. About, about the last thing I'd want to do is let my coworkers in journalism know I'd made a mistake like that. But uh, so it was amazing on two levels, but having not been on Anchorage was not, I mean, there were a bunch of people, believe it or not, covering the news of Alaska who, who were in that boat. So in that regard, it doesn't surprise me that someone never left Anchorage. Well, and, and I've got, so my, my son is in a, in a preschool, like a private preschool out here in, in Dillingham, and uh, hopefully, if she listens, she doesn't, you know, get upset at me with this. But uh, his teacher moved from New York City to come out here and teach. And one of the things that that shocked her when she showed up, and she had rarely left New York City in her life, um, one of the things that shocked her was the fact that she couldn't pick up uh, Uber in Dillingham, or that there wasn't public transportation, or that there wasn't. <laughs> some form of shopping mall. You know, there's a perspective that some people just don't understand. Sometimes Anchorage, and, and when I worked at uh, BP again, one time I, I opened up a jar of salmon, ate it on Ritz crackers, the break room went down the elevator, and a lady that came into the elevator, she said, oh, what stinks so bad? It stinks like fish in here. I said, well, I had salmon for lunch or whatever. And she said, you probably shouldn't do that at work. And I was just thinking... Where am I? 
you know, it, it was a shock to me to have that reaction. But, you know, that's <laughs> So how long do you think your New York school teacher will last? One year. One year. Yeah, that's that's pretty much the norm. It, it's a, you know, it's a uh it's an adventure. Yeah. It, and then Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so that's that's one of the I think that that's what uh, that's one of the problems with rural Alaska is that's it, it's hard to get people to come and stay. You have the cost, you have the challenges of living in rural Alaska, and um, at some point, you know, there it's hard to find workers in rural Alaska. So if you do want to come and work, you usually promote further ahead. I mean, if you're spend your entire life in the Anchorage School District, it's going to be quite a quite a journey to get to become a principal. If you spend your time in rural Alaska, you're probably a principal by the time you're 30. And so uh, once you've been a principal, you've been a principal, and it's pretty easy to move on to a higher-paying, larger school district, et cetera. Yeah. No, it's an, and it, it's, an ad, it's an adaptation to live in rural Alaska. I mean, people in urban America don't realize how spoiled they are. And it's, it's, you know, it's just a change to go out there. And it's, it's certainly, you have to get used to, uh, I know that when people come to visit rural Alaska, one of the very first things that they have an issue with, or that they think of is that some of the maintenance, some of the maintenance, the upkeep of a residence are, are lower that, uh, things that maybe people are just neglecting it. And I think that's one of the, one of the bigger misconceptions of rural Alaska is that nobody's just, or some people are, but it's not that people are, are just letting their homes or other, other possessions get ruined or waste away. It's, it's very difficult to get something fixed. Um, you, you can't just call somebody to fix it. And if you can, they may be busy. And yeah, you, you, you have to be a whole lot more self-sufficient. I mean, there, there's just no, there's just no getting around that. Um, and that, you know, I don't think of that as, as a big deal because after living, you know, years on a sailboat where it forces you to be self-sufficient after having spent a life where I kind of like normally work with my hands. I mean, I grew up fixing snow machines and tinkering on cars and I got to be a pretty good carpenter and I built my own house and, you know, I'm, I'm good with all that stuff. So my, you know, doing that kind of thing is normal. I look around at my neighbors and they like, you know, they come and ask me like some simple project of, you know, where do I get a handyman? And I'm like, well, what's the problem, Warren? And he's like, well, this outlet's not working. Well, let me look at it. And, you know, 10 minutes later, it's fixed. Um, but I think he's more the norm than I am, that people come from urban areas, if something goes wrong, you call someone to fix it. I mean, you don't, you know, you cut your head, you don't stitch it up yourself. You go get a doctor. Um, and those things are... I, those are really, you know, I don't think of them as, as much of a problem. I, I get the feeling you don't think of them as much of a problem, but for most people, those are problems. Well, you uh, you talked about the, the your journey from south uh, from southeast up in to uh, up to the mainland, if you will, up into 
South Central, almost dying, and that's another piece of of Alaska. If you if you've lived here for quite a while, if you don't have a story that you can definitively say that was about as close as I got to dying in in nature, you're you're doing it wrong. You know, you need you need to go out. You need to you need to challenge. You need to be smart. You need to know what you're doing. At some point, this state will grab everybody if you spend enough time. Yeah, it, it goes with the country. I mean, you know, I spent most of my life with the Daily News as the outdoor editor, so uh, there was a lot of exposure. And yeah, it did. You know, the Alaska tosses curveballs at you that, that create problems, um, but most of those are solvable. I mean, the people getting in trouble usually let the first problem create the second problem, which creates the third problem, and pretty soon it's all over. Um, but yeah, you're going to get. I mean, it's something's going to happen to you if you spend enough time in the Alaska wilderness. Is going to make you think about how it could have been all of it. Um, and you know, I always kind of found that the best part of Alaska. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with you. I agree with you. I mean, it's it, wonderful to have those stories. But, you know, from some woman from the New York, I mean, I'm sure going and spending a year in Dillingham is, is like my shooting a bear off my foot. I mean, you know, <laughs> it, it, it's a memorable experience. You, you go back and, you know, you don't forget it. Um, you know, you kind of go back and go, gee, what could I have done better? But it sticks with you forever. And I'm sure, you know, after a year that you go back to New York or America and it's like, wow, here's what happened. And this is how exotic it was, which to a, someone who spent a long time in Alaska is not exotic at all. But on their scale, which is different than my scale, it was like, wow, what an adventure. Um, well, let me let me wrap this up with how you how you mentioned that there. So our resources, as we're, as we're not as we're doing less and less developing of, of them, and we have more and more people that are seeing Alaska through the tourism lens. Uh-huh. Alaska is becoming, or it already is, but it is increasing. It is becoming America's national park, and yeah. we need to be very careful about how much influence. Now you see different banks that are not going to get involved in Alaska development. You're going to see that there will become there is quickly becoming a time because we don't produce, we don't control much of the world market. I mean, we produce less than one percent of the world's market, and if yeah, if we far less than far less than one percent, yeah, we 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 are vulnerable to markets deciding that this should be a national park and if we if we go down that road um, what we lose is schools in every village which is a, a benefit to where we're not we're not sending uh, kids into the hubs and and people can be educated in rural Alaska we lose flush toilets and power generation projects and all of the all of the things that we've grown to become accustomed to even in rural Alaska you'd you know, you can travel out to the villages, and if if you're in one of the hub communities, you travel to the villages. You go, oh my goodness, they don't even have three G. And we're talking about you're in rural Alaska. How, <laughs> what would have you thought? You know, um, twenty years ago, and so that's something we have to certainly be careful of. Giving away this state to simply to the tourists and to outside interests that want to preserve us, freeze us right where we're at, 
because we're not going to be able to develop past that if that's what. Well, there's some commercial fishermen who think that would be a good idea, and I'm not sure they recognize where that string goes at the end because commercial fishing isn't the cleanest business in the world either. And, you know, I can see that getting pushed to the point of, you know, we, we need to really restrict this too because they're starving the bears and, uh, you know, <laughs> they're not putting, they're, they're contaminating the, the water and they burn too much fuel, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if there's one thing I, I can say, though, is the Bristol Bay fishery, as far as I know, it's a it's a special fishery. We got it's so massive, and on a global scale, it's the last one like it. Uh, something that we should certainly protect. But we've got to understand that the market's changing a little bit in it. It's going to take some creativity to to make sure that we stay competitive and to manage the resource correctly. Um, but we still want to fish it. We still want to provide wild salmon to consumers around the globe. But it will become more difficult and more difficult and more difficult. Yeah, but it's not going to go away. I mean, there's a, there's a huge commodity coming back there every year. Um, you know, it's, it's always going to be marketable. I mean, the question is going to be who, who can make money off it and how much, but I mean, it's like oil running on the surface of the water on the surface of the ground. Somebody's going to tap that oil. I mean, you know, it's, it's just inevitable. I mean, it's just how much it's going, it's what's going to happen to the production costs is the issue. And it, we may need to restructure the lower production costs out there because at some point productive production costs, I mean, we have forced inefficiency is what we have in Bristol Bay as in other fisheries. We have mandated government inefficiency and that may make it so no fisherman can make enough money to fish. And, we may need a, a limited entry to to reduce the size, number of permits and increase the size of boats to make it efficient enough that people can make a living. Um, and I don't think anybody wants to think about that. No, but that'll be a, that, that's going to be a difficult conversation, same as a taxi cab driver changes in, in Uber. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a very difficult issues. conversation, but it's probably one we're going to have to have at some point. And yeah. and. Theoretically, it might, you know, might help put some bodies back out your way instead of having them all move away. Well, the more, the more permits <coughs> that you can keep in the bay, I guess you can, you would be able to argue that that is a, is a benefit for Bristol Bay. It's not necessarily a benefit on the, on a large scale, because if you have more and more permits in Bristol Bay, it will, it's go- they're going to be naturally some inefficient producers, but for for Bristol Bay, more and more permits should stay here. Locals should be fishing the fish. That's that's yeah. going to be. There's, I mean, it, 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 it's just no argument why the system shouldn't benefit the people who live there. I mean, if we have an economic system, the first priority, priority ought to be to benefit the people who live there. Um, and the way you do that in the Bay is you get permits in the hands of people who live there so they can fish. Um, it's just <laughs> how you do that's, you know, very tricky. And we kind of put ourselves in this system where we didn't leave ourselves much freedom when we made the permits individually owned and, in, and exchangeable. And now they're in a free market and free markets are really hard to control. 
Yeah, or or impossible. I mean, you can re- regulate it, but you're going to create all sorts of unintended yeah. consequences. Yeah, when you regulate it, you get all kinds of unintended consequences. So, yeah, we, we might have been better if we set up a system that leased them because then you can control it a little more, but we, we're saddled with what we've got, um, and so we which makes sort of do the best we can with what we got. And keep it yeah, going. That, that's, I, I don't think you can unwind it. Well, Craig, you do, so craigmedred.news, correct? Craigmedred.news. Yes. You do something I don't think anybody else, as far as I can tell, there's nobody else in the state that's doing what uh, Craig does. Most of his stories are more than 100 words long. They're well researched you you cannot get to the point of it in uh on your mobile phone in a few seconds um but if you want to actually look at issues look at topics and they are wide-ranging it's not simply i mean primarily you can't even tell where you're at politically etc you look at alaska issues you look at them in depth and i really appreciate that i hope that a lot of people go to craig medred news well thank you for that i i kind of I mean, I kind of tend to think of myself as an apolitical libertarian kind of guy simply because, you know, my, my real background training-wise was in science. And, I, I mean, I'm just kind of curious about the world. And and they're, when you start looking at the issues in the world, they're not as simple as we want them to be. They're not things you can boil down into a hundred-inch story. Um you know, as a guy who spent time in Afghanistan, I'm sure you understand that as well as anyone. It, the world is a complicated place, and you just can't explain it simply. No, and and whatever answer seems to be the mo- the easiest answer on the surface when you're looking at human action is probably not the case. Yeah, it, you've is- got it. <laughs> I mean, the, the the simple solutions look nice. When you employ them, the unintended consequences start pouring out all over the place. And we, and that's where if you go to your website, uh, you know, you can find it with everything. And I hope that you'll come back. We can do this uh, again. I mean, as we get geared up for the Iditarod, they've been going through all sorts of issues. There's, we didn't even touch on the fish wars that go on between commercial fishermen, sport fishermen, personal use, subsistence, uh, there's a lot that's going on in this state. Yeah, there, there are lots of, of difficult issues involving change in this state, and change is a change is a horribly difficult thing for people. Um, we all just kind of wanted life to go along on an even strain, and, and life just doesn't do that. Well, and I, I got a, a wise piece. When I was in college, I got a wise piece of advice from a uh, from. From a senator, I went to the University of Wyoming, and uh, the senator, uh, you know, of course you're a radical when you're 20 years old. You know, you want everything changed to this radical. You're the only one that's ever thought of it before, you know. And um, <laughs> he he said, "Well, what you're calling for is a revolution, and what what I would like to see is an evolution, because revolutions frequently get out of control. But you can kind of you can kind of bump an evolution to where you want it to go, and I think that's." That's what we need to do. I, I think that's a good observation, but it's hard to recognize that when you're 20. Oh, no. You just want the world to burn when you're 20. Yeah, I, I was a lot smarter in my 20s than I am in my 60s. <laughs> Isn't that unbelievable how it happens? <laughs> I lose knowledge <laughs> Craig, thank you very much, and I hope we do this again. I enjoyed it. Thanks. Bye. Bye.